This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com. Call to Adventure, hosted by Alex Opolis and John Duckworth, an exploratory conversation about facing the unknown, an opportunity to discuss those pivotal moments that illuminate new paths and reveal deeper purpose and meaning in our lives. Welcome to Ohm Radio, Call to Adventure. We have with us today a dear friend, one of my favorite people on the planet, um, probably most recognizably known for his work uh, in founding Sticky Fingers Barbecue, a tremendous success that uh, over time he and his two great friends sold in 2006. They had built to 16 different locations. Uh, but he's also incredibly actively involved in politics and government. He served as deputy chief of staff to a governor, served as a chair of several organizations, including the South Carolina Government Efficiency and Accountability Review Commission, the South Carolina Club for Growth, the South Carolina Venture Capital Authority, and as a vice chairman for Governor Nikki Haley's transition team. He was a member of the inaugural class of the Liberty Fellowship and currently serves as the governor's appointed chair of the South Carolina Board of Economic Advisors. Suffice it to say, he is actively involved in our day-to-day politics, uh, for which we all benefit. Um, But one of the, I want to share just a little story about an email I received from our guest uh, this past Saturday. It was about a four-page email. It was written at about 1.55. I always find his emails coming in at odd times. Uh, This was A.M., this was no. This was PM Saturday PM on the weekdays. Oh, okay. They usually come in uh, late at night. All right. Um, he works around the clock in all that he does. But the beauty of this email was that it was about work that he was doing with his two girls, uh, with an organization, and the event was designed to uh, give back to those less fortunate. And his email was to the leader of that event, um, questioning maybe the efficiency and the impact that. Uh, the way they were giving, uh, the results that those were creating. Um, It was a beautiful email. I won't read the whole thing, but I would just read to you what he ended it with. I'd ask that you read below with an open mind and heart and with the knowledge that I really respect you for all the work you've put into helping others. And I think that just, for me, sort of succinctly describes who uh, one of my dear friends, uh, our guest on the show, uh, Chad Waldorf, is. Always involved on every level, big and small. Very, very kind intro. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I worked hard to recreate that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we always ask our guests some introductory questions, and uh, but one of the questions you put back to us, I thought was fascinating, and it has to do with a road trip that you took with your father, uh, what ten or twelve years ago. Would you share with us that story and, and sort of the question you asked your dad and, 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 and the question you ask yourself? Sure. So my, my dad is a real estate agent, and we were um, looking at uh, potential sticky finger sites and, and driving around um, looking at, at closed restaurants around the southeast. And so we spent three or four days together, and it was a, it was a, a cool sort of time to get to spend with my dad. Um, and one of the questions I, I asked him at some point was, you know, you graduated from college in '61. Um, the height of the civil rights movement was was going on then, or a couple years later. 
you know, how were you involved? What, what were your thoughts? What did you do? And his, his answer really, really stuck with me and was disappointing in that he said, I didn't really do anything and it didn't really occur to me to get involved. Um, I, I don't think my dad um, is at all racist, but I think he was just oblivious and sort of ignorant and it wasn't his problem. Um, he's politically active to, to some degree these days um, but he just really really I think missed out on an opportunity and a historical opportunity to make a difference and so that's that, that disappointment I took away from that conversation is something I think that's probably fueled me I, I don't want to have that conversation with my kids 20 30 years from now I don't want them to say dad and you know 2016 um, this was a big issue where were you and I don't, I don't want them to sort of look at me if, if I say, you know what, I just, I just kind of didn't think about it. I kind of didn't, kind of didn't want to get involved. And for those who know you, you'll, you'll never uh, have to say that. Uh, you've, you're always involved. I think what I think about is like, what is that issue that you think our kids will ask us 20 or 30 years from now? Sure. Or ask you? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question we should all be asking ourselves. Um, for me, the two things that, that I sort of worry about and I've f- focused on are related, although they oddly don't seem so at first because one's sort of a traditional Republican issue and one's sort of a traditional Democrat issue, um, but related to, to resources. And are we using resources now in an unfair way that's going to sort of deplete the cupboard for our kids? And so from the sort of fiscal conservative side of me, that's that's fiscal resources and um, just incredible uh, levels of government spending and debt, um, both at the federal and state level um, and unfunded liabilities, really, really scares me. I feel like we're, we're taking finance, financial benefits now for people that our children and grandchildren are gonna have to pay for. And to me, that's really unfair and unsustainable and going to cause huge problems. And so that's, that's where I've spent a lot of time focused. But additionally, on the environmental side, um, more of a traditional Democrat issue, I have the same fear and the same concern. And I think the same, the same thing's going on. We're using resources and depleting um, both resources and using them in unsustainable ways that's causing changes to the planet that I think is absurdly unfair to future generations. And so I think it would be wrong to not be involved in in both those issues yeah is you know we're gonna you've been so engaged politically uh from your stint in reagan's white house to your stint as chief of staff we're gonna get back into the political conversations um a little bit later um but what an additional question that uh that we asked was sort of um things about what what you fear or or what you no longer fear um and i thought your response was was interesting sure and then this is a conversation i think you and i've had over the years as we've sort of uh, grown up i guess as as adults together so uh, there was certainly a time in my late teens and 20s where i feared being in charge or having responsibility um i I thought you know everyone else sort of knew more than i did and i was um, in a lot of ways, more comfortable being a follower rather than a leader. And I think that's flipped now in a lot of ways that, that I fear sort of not having the responsibility and not 
having the ability to to influence an organization or anything I'm involved in. Um, so it's probably a pretty natural, um, hopeful growth over time for everybody. But I, I think it's it's somewhat interesting to look back and, and see that change. Occur. See the pendulum swing from one side to the other? Sure. And I guess it could swing both ways uh, at too far in, in, in either direction. Yeah, um, no, I totally agree with you. You can be a there. wallflower on one side. On the other side, you can, you can you know, let, you know, tend towards uh, ego-driven without being able to see, actually, other sides of the coin. Sure, yeah, no doubt. I, I think it's... <clears throat> I've often said, you said this about your dad, you know, you learned one of maybe life's most important lessons about what he didn't do, you know, um, and that shaped what you do do. You, you often learn a lot from what you don't want to be as opposed to what you want to be. And when I think about your leadership style, it's such, uh, uh, you, you walk such a, um, a humble path. Uh, you, you definitely... Uh, not to use Obama's lead from behind, I won't go there. But uh, <laughs> so, so what shaped that sort of approach? Was there anything that sort of built that? Yeah, I, I don't know where that sort of came from. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a big believer in the whole servant leadership concept, and I've seen leaders exhibit that that I've respected, and seen leaders who try the dictatorial sort of cram down yell at people approach and have kind of recoiled at that historically mm-hmm. um so it certainly picked one over the other over time um i guess just th- through experience and watching and learning came more naturally to you as well i'd imagine yeah, for sure yeah yeah i couldn't see you in the dictatorial you know <laughs> screaming and shouting at people <laughs> i old, appreciate that <laughs> what uh you know you you digest so much content um film TED Talks, books, magazines, newspapers, all of it. Is there a, a favorite venue for you now, or where do you where do you get your what are your sources? Um, it's kind of across the board. So I've got a, a brother in the film business, and so he he feeds me cool cool things to watch um, on a frequent basis. Um, some TED Talks, a lot of uh, periodicals, newspapers. I probably read the Wall Street Journal and. Post and Courier most days, um, and magazines. Um, the Atlantic is is one I enjoy, kind of just kind of across the board a little mm-hmm. bit of everything. One one question we asked Quentin Baxter, which I think is an interesting question, so I want you to answer it with total honesty. <laughs> um, because oftentimes when I have the guests that we have on the show, you sort of I scratch my head, going, "How do they do it all? How do they do it all?" You know, um, so I'm always interested in what a day in the life truly looks like um, because it's not easy. It's hard work. I mean, I, I joke about getting emails past 12 o'clock at night, but that's because you're taking the time to respond to emails at 1230 at night. So walk us through our, our guests, our listeners, a day in the life of Chad Waldorf. I mean, first of all, trying to compare me to Quentin's totally unfair because he's so much cooler than I am. So <laughs> I sort of reject the question, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll play along and roll with it anyway. Um, most days, get up, take the kids to school um, by 8 o'clock, uh, head to the office or work out some days first thing in the morning. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I work a lot. I'm at the office most days until... Five five thirty. Um, occasionally, I'll grab lunch with some friends, but a lot of times it's, you know, lunch in the office, and um, you know, go home 
uh, dinner ever try to do dinner every night with the kids. I mean, that's you have a house rule, right? It, six o'clock, you dinner. six o'clock devices down dinner at six. So I'm making a beeline out the door at, at five forty every day to, to get home for dinner. Um, and I am to my wife's credit, if I'm late, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of missing out on the first part of dinner. And oh, yeah, it's so on I've, six. I've learned my lesson that, that uh, you know, screaming hungry kids, they're not going to wait around. Um, so, you know, get the kids to bed, a little bit of homework, read with the kids, um, do whatever. And usually by 8.30, 9 o'clock, everybody's down, um, hang out with, with my wife some. And then more often than not, at 10 o'clock, it's, um, you know, get back and, and typically answer or, or send emails for another couple hours or I've printed out stuff that I bring home to, to work on. Um, so usually up till 12, 1 o'clock or well, a little bit later. I've traveled with you quite a bit and, and you sort of take that same approach on the road too. I mean, you're pretty consistent. Is there something in that day that you find that without it, you lose your, your balance? I mean, is, um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm newer to the sort of daily exercise routine and that's certainly been a huge help. Um, I think a lot of it is I've been on the other end of um, an email or a phone call where you don't get the response and where you're waiting on people. And so if I had to be honest, I would say I would probably am driven by a huge fear of not disappointing people. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want people somewhere going, man, if Chad would just give me an answer on this or get back to me on something, um, you know, I could move forward. And so I try to, out of a res- sense of respect, I think, try to be very responsive to people as, as often as I can. It's a good practice to keep. It's not always so easy to do, though. I mean, I'm, I, if your inbox is anything like mine, they pile up pretty quickly. No, they definitely do. And being able to discern which ones are the most important to respond to at the moment sure. can be challenging for yeah, sure. Yeah, no, it's definitely not easy. As, as y'all know, for example, with me getting y'all yeah. uh, some thoughts for the show <laughs> or some songs. Um, it's all good. So apologize for that. So we're going to break into our first song before we come back to our first major adventure. Um, Kebmo, uh, A Better Man, walk us through a little bit about the impact this song has had on you and and, and why you chose it. Sure. Um, Well, let me sort of explain, I guess, why I went with the the blues genre. When I came back to Sticky Fingers or was thinking about coming back and getting involved with Sticky Fingers, I went around a bunch of the restaurants and some were playing country western some were playing pop um i heard britney spears in one of the restaurants and um you know it made made me realize in lots of ways the restaurant had sort of lost its soul we used to be um, back in our day very um we had a very kind of tight sound it was blues and sort of the midwest um blues and soul sound that we thought was consistent with our tennessee memphis roots and um, it was a big part of the brand, and Sticky Fingers had definitely strayed from that in a big way. So we, um, my kids and I actually, in some, we had a, a contest with employees and put together a, a soundtrack of over 300 blues songs. A lot of blues, a lot of Stevie Ray Vaughan or, or other blues has got sort of screeching guitar that's not appropriate for, for casual dining setting. So it's, it's a real distinct sort of blues and soul sound we were going for. And so we put together this very large soundtrack that um, actually was we had a station play um, for us and then they 
picked it up i'm proud to say and they're they're playing it nationally that any restaurant around the country can now sort of dial into what the sticky fingers blues soundtrack is um and and i think a decent amount of restaurants are doing it um so having spent having listened to over a thousand blues songs in the last year as we put this soundtrack together um we play a lot of kebmo in the restaurant and uh i think it's a cool sort of upbeat aspirational song um, that, that I thought would be appropriate for the Gosh, show. seeing Perfect. him live and his smile oh, yeah. and just, I mean, talk about inspirational. He's He's got a great energy. Sure. Absolutely. So, uh, well, let's play some Keb Mo, a better man. One, two, three. Understand, 
Keb Moe, Better Man, playing all across the country, depending on where you are. And Chad Waldorf's personally curated uh, blues mix. Pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty pretty exciting, for sure. That's, that's a nice perk of the job. You get to sit back and listen to thousands of blues music with your kids. and <laughs> it, it was fun. It was, it, was, it was kind of exhausting. And kind the kids of exhausting, li- little, The kids are kind of over it. <laughs> they're like, no more blues. Uh, exactly, but it, it was, it was oh, fun. It's funny. Um... Well, let's uh, let's back up a little bit, all the way to 1988, and uh, you end up. Uh, sound like pretty quickly, uh, within a two-week period, you get an offer and you head up to Washington D.C. to work in the White House. Yeah, so I, I was home from college and sort of heard about a potential internship. I was home for and you were for at UVA. Christmas. Yeah, I was at UVA, just home in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for Christmas, and I think a couple days after Christmas maybe I sort of found out about this opportunity and had a phone interview and a second phone interview between then and New Year's and sort of that quickly rather than going back to school you know that first week of January um, I I kept going a couple hours up the road and and went to DC and had a opportunity to to work in the White House for a a three-month internship unpaid internship. And was this something that was on your radar, like you had been, or, or, or was it more of a more of a fluke? Were yeah, it was a t- it was a total fluke. Really, sort of, sort of heard about the opportunity through my aunt in, um, in huh. um, Alabama, and uh, just a total fluke. Not at all anything I'd considered. But what were you studying at the time? Uh, a little bit of everything. I mean, okay. it was only my second year of school, okay. so I was kind of all over the place. And, and, yeah, okay. did, didn't know if I was going to study government or business and probably got back and forth between the two at the time. So interesting the way this happens, Alex, and I've talked to so many people where a seemingly random thing, you know, comes across their, 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 their radar and suddenly it becomes, as we see later, you know, this, this becomes a reoccurring thread throughout your life, you know, a political, um, uh, being involved politically, and the- even behind the scenes. And the interesting thing is that the difference is the those fleeting moments probably pass through everybody's life at different levels, but it's those who seize it um, that r- really make 
incredible lives. You know, the, the, there's lots of doors open, but not all of yeah, us. Yeah, what, what was it? What was it about through. this one that, that that made you leap? I mean, uh, it's a it's a great question. I, I don't I don't know that I can really go back that far, but okay. I, I think I was just thinking. I mean, this something is, different. This, this is the White House. Yeah, I mean, okay. it, it was just sort of a remarkable opportunity for a 19 year old um, to to get. And you're right. I think Alex, your point is. You know how how often do we get these opportunities and and not seize them because it's the easy thing to do is keep doing what you're doing and the easy thing to do yeah. is mean to go back to college and and my fear at the time I do remember this was boy I'm in, you know I'm going to miss my friends and you know at the time sophomore in college you know the, the just kind of the social aspects of college was real important and weighed heavy and I thought man I'm a, you know should I can I miss out on that and and how tough will it be and in retrospect and pretty quickly you learn um when you sort of go away and then come back nothing really changes right. where you left um it's it's you pretty can step easy. right back you into can it. step right back into it exactly but yeah. the, the only thing that's probably really changed is you've changed because, as a result yeah, of, because of the experience because right. right. you ended up being after the internship staying on for a little while as a paid staffer right exactly so yeah. i went home for the summer I was okay. working at a bank at home and then um, somebody left our office, and so they hired me on for the last six months of the administration. So what turned out, what I thought was going to be a semester off, ended up being a full year off um, and a, a f- almost a full year working in the, in the last year of the Reagan White House. And it sounds like a pretty pivotal time in your life. Sure, absolutely. And, and it, you know, you look back at those things, and they have tremendous influence on sort of who you are as a person, and you think, you know, what, how different would I be had I not taken that opportunity um, you know, and, and that I had maybe a couple of days to decide whether to do or not. Was that really your first recollection of, of taking a leap in a direction, or had you been doing that earlier in your in your young life? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd done it, as I think back, probably one other time. I, I spent a summer in Japan, the hmm. summer before my senior year, as part of an exchange program. And similar, there was kind of an opportunity that came around and a very brief window of opportunity to, to make a decision. Um, and so my longtime friend and, and business partner, Todd Ashad, and I talked each other into it, into a late night conversation. We both ended up doing a six-week stand in Japan. We thought it'd be fun to sort of hang out together over there. It turned out we were a couple thousand miles apart. So <laughs> I only, only saw him once for a couple of days. Um, <laughs> but it, it, I think that maybe helped give me the courage to do it again later that you know i missed out on you know whatever was going on that summer with my friends mm-hmm. for a while but it, it at least my mom said i came back a, a much nicer more appreciative kid than, oh, yeah. than when i left <laughs> um so I, I think it was helpful in my growth as a person one of the questions around the theme of a call to adventure is you do jump left take that path sort of learn a different knowledge and then you re-enter and and how do you re-enter you everything's the same but you've changed um can you talk a little bit about re-entry and uh, w- what that looked like sure um yeah I have, uh, it was a little tough coming back to college having spent a year in the white house with older people um you know working on you know re- relatively important stuff and then coming back to college and Did, th- didn't you have a say or maybe pen something that went into one of reagan's speeches is I did, that yeah i'm did. I making that up or? no fa- fairly early on and that, yeah. that was pretty exciting that's pretty cool i did some research and um put a memo together 
um, it, you know, wasn't my idea. I was, was told to look into something, but uh, he ended up using it in a few speeches, and, and that was pretty cool stuff for a 19-year-old to, to put something to paper and, and then have the have it come out of the president's mouth. It certainly changed me, and the, the reentry, you know, it, as you said, you, you come back different. Mm-hmm. Did you find that you were, because you're going to come back to politics a lot in your later life, um, did you find that you were itchy? when you got back to sort of like what's next um sort of i I think i have an ability to jump into something and then step out of it and kind of leave it for a while um so it's been it's been fun to have this dichotomy between business stuff and political activity um and be able to go back and forth between the two so I, i stayed a little bit involved when i came back um but for the most part was able to leave it and sort of move forward and focus on sort of what was on my plate at the time um, and, and at the and time that ended up being starting sticky fingers and that was a pretty long run before it comes i think 15 years later when you have your next opportunity in 2003 to get into politics locally in south carolina sure um, um and that was a similar was that a similar thing where it sort of came out uh, kind of from left field or was this something that you had on your radar um, I, I don't know that I had it on my radar, but I was a little more thoughtful about this yeah. one, and it was a little more planned. I had gotten to know Mark Sanford when he was in Congress, and um, it, he came in when he was running for Congress and was sort of at zero in the polls. And, um, you know, I think partially based on my White House experience, we talked some and sort of hit it off. Um, I had been pretty apolitical for most of that time period. Um, but he sort of got me engaged, and we became friendly and, you know, got to know each other better over time as we catered events for him, um, his election parties. He had a few of them at our restaurant. And when he was elected, um, I just sent him my resume, which I had not had one, but put one together <laughs> specifically to send to him and say, um, I, I think I'm at a point with the restaurant company where I could take a couple years off and sort of get back and get involved in state government. I, I don't know much of anything about what's going on in Columbia, um, but I think I'm a quick learner and certainly a hard worker and willing to play a role if, uh, if, if you've got a spot for me. And I thought I would end up at one of the agencies. I remember um, talking to our friend David Agnew, and he, he had some spots picked out for me he thought I should be going for. Yeah. Um, and then Mark wanted me involved in his his in the governor's office so I ended up signing up and um, doing a two-year stand as his deputy chief of staff when he was first elected it sounds like that wasn't without a lot of challenge no it was tough your description yeah no it was, it was really tough yeah. um, one I had a big learning curve yeah right um, two there was the chief of staff who, who didn't particularly like me didn't particularly like Mark didn't agree with sort of our direction he was a longtime um, state government insider and so I think he saw us both as uh, sort of uppity ignorant um guys oh, trying to okay. get involved and in, in playing a sandbox um so whereas he couldn't really take it out on mark he he sort of came after me pretty hard um so that that was challenging not Did you have a sense that that's that this was going to be a pretty big challenge going in or were you just more excited and and blindsided a bit by how well, you know, I mean, you go back in that time because we, we were good friends then. But, I mean, I just remember. I mean, he's running a very successful restaurant company. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're doing everything you want, enjoying yourself, the fruits of your hard work. And to veer left all the way up to Columbia to live in a small apartment to work round the clock in an arena that you really didn't have any 
real hands-on experience, but we're thrust into a really important role. I mean, yeah, it's a lot. It, it, it was a lot. It, it was tough. And there were definitely some nights where I'd look at the ceiling of my sort of bare bones, tiny apartment and think, what in the world am I doing up here? Right. I, you know, I've got a lot of friends and had developed a, a life I was pretty excited about in Charleston. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, it was exactly the right thing to do. And I'm so glad I did it. And it's opened up mm-hmm. so many doors and allowed me to, to stay engaged in a lot of ways that wouldn't have happened. Um, but at the time, there was definitely a lot of self-doubt, both from, you know, what, what am I doing with my life? Why am I here? Um, it was difficult trying to get up to speed on what was going on and, and sort of some challenges with the role. Um, so, yeah, it was a it, it was a tough, uh, at least the first year was really, really challenging. After a while, I think I found my groove and felt like I was contributing a lot more and starting to get some wins and make some things happen. So by the time I left, I felt great about the experience. But mm. early in, two, three, four months into it, it was it was not something I was excited about doing. You know, some people, John, you're one of them. Um, when you dig into something, I mean, you go deep, like really deep. You know, uh, when you dug into politics, your level of depth in like policy details minutia wonkish stuff i mean you you went pretty deep and and still have for i mean now what uh you know close to 12 years right sure yeah I'd, I'd, I mean, what, what do you think of as some of your major accomplishments in your in your engagement with south carolina politics right um well let me first your first point i, I don't think i'm the brightest guy so i try to make up with it with hard work and so whether it was getting involved in the restaurant business without I'd worked one summer at Wendy's, so you know that, <laughs> that, that qualified. Yeah, exactly. So I had a big learning curve there, or jumping into state government at the level I did. Um, you know, just just sort of gutting it out and and putting the time in um, and asking a lot of questions and trying to get things better, make things better every day. Um, I think is kind of my mo and the only way I've figured out how to how to do something. So it does involve. Um, like you're talking about with John, a, a pretty deep dive. Um, I, th- I think we had a lot of successes over time, and you mentioned the word wonkish, and most of them are. Um, <laughs> so feel free to tune out at this point. But um, the governor had never really been involved in the budget process, and so we did the first real working executive budget um, budgets in the state and got very deeply involved in that conversation um, in a way that I think ultimately saved by now hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, for taxpayers um, and I think made a lot of government work more efficiently by pointing out some, some areas that could have done um, could be done better um, I sp- spent a lot of time working on issues around the budget and control board and, and later chaired a group that, that dug into it and that eventually was was done away with and I'd like to think I've played a pretty big role in that happening over time and, and essentially put the administrative functions of government under the governor rather than under a sort of quasi-executive uh, legislative entity. And, and so in a way, I think that makes all of government, makes every agency, gives it the opportunity to run more efficiently. It's interesting the way, so coming in, as you said, without a lot of experience, um, I'm wondering if that gave you a little bit of a leg up as far as, you know, you had fresh eyes looking at all this. And, yeah. and were these were these sort of things that you took on personally as you were involved and in saying, like, this needs some attention? Sure. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. And, and same thing, I think, with the restaurant business when we first yeah. got going. It's a real 
benefit and i, I didn't know this at the time with yeah. either either uh entity or either either um, adventure but i do think there's a real benefit to not being deeply involved in something and then jumping in with both feet and bringing whatever experience you've got or mindset or or sort of fresh eyes to you've got a much more wide open view at that point it, i mean I, over time it always starts to narrow as you start to figure out where your focus should be sure um, but it's I, I, it sounds like it's that's the place you were in which benefited you yeah absolutely and, and i guess is a, a lesson to sort of all of us who when we're deeply involved in something to not discount yeah. the ideas of that fresh perspective and it's easy to say oh he or she doesn't know what they're talking about they're they're not involved right. in it but that's where a, a lot of great ideas typically come from yeah that's true it's interesting to me um that in you know which is a pretty extensive term for lack of a better uh word in politics you've always chosen to do it uh behind the scenes never in elected office and there's something there i mean i know you're very humble and maybe you would just shudder at being you know uh in a in a in the limelight yeah i mean what what is it though there's something there that that keeps you from that which you know most people gravitate towards they don't gravitate towards the the inner workings of government right well i think we've all got different roles to play and at some point, I've decided that that's sort of my role. Um, and it may be um, from a selfish standpoint. I mean, it, it's difficult to be an elected official and you're always on. And, you know, Saturday you go to the grocery store and you're the elected official and people are going to approach you or you've got to, um, you know, maybe think you need to present a certain facade that may or may not be consistent with, with who you really are all the time. And so from maybe a family standpoint, um, I'm sort of selfishly wanted to be involved and engaged, but keep a lot of my, I don't want to say anonymity, but um, keep my private time to myself and and not have to share that or my family with uh, with a wider public. Yeah, it sounds like a reasonable thing to... To, to ask for and you're not going to get that as soon as you sign up for for public office sure you know your 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 life's an open book you know right and, and part of it too when when you're in public office you're asked to opine on everything oh yeah and i've, I've always found that difficult and disingenuous to to have an opinion on everything that's going on and be willing to put out a statement on everything so this There's, way you can actually go ahead and just focus on the things you really care exactly. about and exactly have, and feel strongly about exactly okay i mean speaking of that i was curious we were talking earlier about you know there's so many people in the country who don't really feel that strongly about getting involved in politics there's a great you know wide swath of apathy out there towards the whole process and yet you get in and seem to want to dig deeper um can you share with some people who might be listening like um, um how that experience feels to actually be involved on the inside rather than on the outside looking in sure and, and and add to that um how would you uh, uh desire or hope that your children might be involved mm. in the political realm you know um yeah that's a great question and one i've thought a little bit about um to john's question or point i mean i, I understand why people are frustrated with the political process i mean there there are or there is a, a political, I think, class that sort of feeds on the system. And there's an enormous amount of money and power that goes through, be it the state house in Columbia or the federal government in D.C., and a lot of people have, make very lucrative livings um, sort of sucking at the teat of that. And I think people 
sense that and see it and get frustrated and get apathetic towards it. Um, my approach has kind of been the opposite, um, and maybe just because I've had some opportunities to get involved. But I would encourage, I mean, people really, really can make a difference. And so I would encourage people to pick an issue or two that they really care about and get engaged and get involved in um, because you can make a difference. And we need people involved to make a difference. Otherwise, I think we, we keep getting what we've what we've gotten for a while and and that's that's frustrating so that that's a role i've played with the club for growth is trying to get more people involved in seemingly less important races but have real consequences for for where we are as a state um to to alex's question about um i I would hope my children have some level involvement um you know if any of them decided that running for office and being more out front was for them um i'd be encouraging that and i think it'd be great um but if not i would hope that they would have some sense of civic duty that they would pick something to get involved in and it doesn't have to be political or government it can be nonprofits or um you know coaching kids teams or i'm a big believer in in, um you know getting involved in volunteering um so i would would certainly hope that i raise them with that sense of civic duty to jump in somewhere i can uh my money would be placed on that they will because <laughs> uh, they have a wonderful father and mother who, uh, who who do a lot of it set a great example so um, as the godfather to my oldest I'm, I appreciate you saying that now you've got a role in that too uh, we're going to cut out to, uh, gosh, a, a band uh, that certainly defined my relationship. I mean, I've been listening to them from the time I first met you, probably, you know? Uh, we're going to go into Sunvolt and Windfall, right? Yep, that, yep. exactly. Um, tell, share, a li- share a little about this band and, and maybe that song. Sure. Well, and it's I, f- I feel like I'm cheating on Jeff Tweedy um, for not going with the Wilco song because that's been... Um, they've provided probably the soundtrack to the greater part of my life over the last 15 or so years. Um, but it, it listening to a lot of Wilco, it, it was hard to find a song that just felt appropriate for a sort of called adventure. So, and so I went a slightly different direction with, with some vault. Um, and just, a, it's kind of a great road trip song, adventure song. And, uh, so we'll, with that, right. I guess we'll play it. Let's roll. May the wind take your troubles away. seems to die trail spent with fear not enough living on the outside never seem to get far enough staying in between the lines hold on what you can waiting for the end not knowing when may the wind take your troubles away May the wind take your troubles away Both feet on the floor, two hands on the wheel May the wind take your troubles away Time's on 
guitar and settle down Catching an all-night station Somewhere in Louisiana It sounds like 1963 But for now Sounds like heaven May the wind take your troubles away May the wind take your troubles away Both feet on the floor Two hands on the wheel May the wind take your troubles away May the wind take your troubles away May the wind take your troubles away Coming back to uh, what you might argue is one of the the, uh, the largest adventures of your life thus far, uh, which is your venture into opening a barbecue restaurant with two of your best friends, uh, Jeff Goldstein and Todd Eichad. Tell us a little bit about the starting of that company, because none of you guys had restaurant experience. You're Wendy's, right? Right. Um, For one, one summer when I was None of like you had barbecue 16. experience. So, so how did you start a barbecue chain? Well, so Jeff's dad had had some experience with a, a barbecue place in Memphis, um, and Todd and I were living out in Colorado, so shortly after I graduated, and Jeff called, I'm not sure if, if it was for me or Todd or both of us, but because we lived together, he, he couldn't get one without the other, I think, um, and said, hey, my, my mom's from Charleston, um, I'd, I'd only been here once in my life as a kid and didn't and passed through one night, um, but said, you know, my mom and my dad are moving back to Charleston. There's not a Memphis-style rib house there like my dad's had in Memphis, and he's willing to help us get started. Um, would you guys like to be partners in it and, and move to Charleston? That's your introduction to Charleston. That, that's You're opening a restaurant. For, fortunately, it's like a world-class town. It could have been, yeah, I know, right? You know, yeah. could have been elsewhere, and um, I would not have been so psyched eventually to um, put down roots elsewhere. But uh, did you uh, belabor that decision much, or was it like, yeah, let's do this? Yeah, I, th- I think it was pretty quickly. We, yeah. we It just felt right. Um, yeah. At the time, Todd and I were planning on saving some money working in Colorado and going to Australia and doing some biking um, oh, yeah. around there as, as youngsters. Um, so that, that, that'll that come up later, obviously. Um, but it, it just felt like the right thing to do, and so we sort of jumped on the opportunity. A lot of it, I think, was... You know, like Jeff, like Todd, felt cool to do something with with two good friends. I thought I would do that at some point, but I thought it'd be in my thirties, not at mm. twenty three. Um, and then the the thought that a friend of ours, dad, who had been successful in business, was willing to be partners with us, just seemed really kind of right. too cool to pass up um, for a twenty three year old. You know, for those of us who know you guys, it's one of the most unique, special relationships I've ever witnessed in my life, which is the relationship with your two business partners, Jeff and Todd. I mean, it's, it's magical, really. Um, and weird, uh, <laughs> but, totally. but really it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and you guys go back to what age 10? I mean, how, how early? Yeah. Seventh, seventh grade. So probably age 11 or 12. Yeah. yeah. So we, we go way back and we were good friends in high school over time. 
And I think if you put the three of us in a room together, we would instantly sort of mentally retreat to different corners. No, you're totally different. <laughs> I mean, totally. Couldn't be any more opposite. I mean... But if you, if you put the three of us in a room of 100 people, we would naturally sort of gravitate towards each other, I think, and hang out. And there's a lot of similarities there, but it, it certainly doesn't seem like it in a business, from huh. a business standpoint or, or, you know, if you're hanging out with us, for sure. But two um, incredible guys that I'm blessed to know and have been involved with for as long as I have. It's nice to be able to, and we talk about, you know, the theme of the show, Call to Adventure, and, and so often people are making these leaps, it's, it, you feel like you're alone. And you're jumping off into the unknown, you know, and here you are doing when you open sticky fingers, you got two of your good friends and, you know, one of their parents directly involved. That has to feel a lot more secure or at least a lot more comforting when you're jumping into a situation like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we were young and ignorant enough and didn't have a lot to lose and thought we may do this for a year or two and learn a lot and then yeah. go back to school or you know get a you know get an adult job or or you know do, do yeah. something else it just seemed like a a fun adventure that we were not at all thinking or at least i wasn't thinking this will be a potential career path for us and you're right having doing it with two friends made it a lot of fun made it special and and not nearly as scary as some of these other sort of detours i've taken in my life yeah yeah you know you had you guys had a remarkable run um in uh how many you built it into ultimately 16 locations um i remember having the conversation because it goes back to one of the earlier questions we talked about uh, the fear of being in charge because you thought maybe somebody else knew more and i remember when you were thinking about selling sticky fingers that the idea was that you know somebody else knows more than us and can take it to the next level Sure. So that was it was a real fear. Like we can't take it to fifty. Right. Uh, we'll sell it and have somebody else uh, do that. Sure, that didn't happen. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> but you're right. That was always sort of motivating to us. Is every day I woke up thinking, I'm not really a restaurant guy. I don't know the business. I've got a lot to learn. You know, you look at other concepts out there that were I thought doing better than we were. So I was always trying to get better every day. But ultimately, you're right. We thought. We, we think there's real growth potential here. The concept's doing well. The brand is doing well. Let's sell it to someone who can take it to that next level because that's sort of beyond our capabilities. We had a thousand employees and we were starting to have families. And, you know, part of it was certainly the travel um, was, was getting to us a little bit and we wanted to simplify. Um, but a big part of it was sell it to someone who could take it to the next level. Yeah, you got in the back seat and let somebody else drive the car. And, and you sort of, I mean, we did have an economic crisis in 08 and 09, but you sort of watched somebody else drive the car right off the cliff. Yeah, and if, if you ask me regrets, one would certainly be our role in that. We were on the board. We still had a small stake in it, and you had people who came in and, and made massive changes in ways that impact the culture pretty quickly, and we didn't fight back enough. We would push back some at, sort of at the boardroom table with the owners, but we didn't sort of bang our fist on the table and say, guys, this is just wrong. And I think it was that fear that these are experienced people who've done this before with restaurants and run bigger restaurant companies than ours. And so this is sort of part of professionalizing what was a barely held together entity. Um, and so we, we gave them a lot of latitude. And I think in retrospect, should, should have been more vocal. Hindsight's twenty twenty, I suppose, and that. But at at, at the time, I suppose you you talk about fear of these guys potentially knowing more than you did, 
and letting it roll. But there's also, I'm sure, there had to be some trust involved there, too, where you're thinking, okay, this is why we did this. Sure. Because these guys are going to be able to take it into this direction. So let's sit back and let it happen. And, and you know, I'm sure it was hard to hard to watch eventually. Sure. Um, yeah. And there was a point when you, when, when you said, you know, enough, enough's enough. And yeah. I didn't want to be a stereotypical owner or founder of a business who sold it stayed involved and was sort of kicking and screaming as the business sort of grew and professionalized and so i was very cognizant of not being that guy yeah to a fault to the point where we we sort of sat there and watched them screw it up we we tried some to prevent it but yeah um it, it also tells you sort of how fleeting culture is and um sort of magical it is when it's working and how quickly it can dissipate when when it's, it's the little things you wouldn't think direction. about you know a, a restaurant you know 16 restaurants and and you're coming back to the music sure you know and it doesn't you wouldn't think at a quick glance that that's going to make a major contribution but it is i mean it's it's those small things that add up and give a place its culture sure no doubt i mean there there are thousands of details that go into making a restaurant experience sort of what it is and as I've gotten involved over the past year, I mean, we've, we've made literally hundreds of changes to what was going on, none of which are silver bullets, but all mm. are hopefully accretive and sort of add to... Start to accumulate into something different. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and let me say, just the biggest part is taking care of the people. So, I mean, I, we might have skipped that part, taking care of the people, of course. Yeah. Okay. But, but it, you came back. Sure. And that's what, you know, we talked about starting it, selling it. And then there's a moment when just this year, right, 2016. And before we go there, I'm interested because that that was at that moment in life what sort of defined Chad Waldorf. Um, and so I'm interested in what it felt like um, to take off all those clothes, for lack of a better description. Sure. Um, and to be somebody new in the world that wasn't. Chad Waldorf, Sticky Fingers. Yeah, no, that, that was scary, and that was a that was a big fear in terms of selling the business. Is sort of for all most of my adult life, other than my two years working for Mark, I had been, um, and even then, I was still sort of the founder of Sticky Fingers and still a little bit involved. And that was something we really struggled with: is sort of who were we once we were not running the company that we started. Um, it, it was difficult, and I was. You remember you and I talked. I was worried I was going to be bored. I was worried I wasn't going to be challenged. I didn't want to, um, you know, not be actively engaged in things. And, um, you know, pretty quickly, six, eight months after selling, you know, I had too much on my plate again and um, was sort of right back where I was before just working on different stuff. But it, it was a real difficult decision and, and scary. You know, we all have egos and, and some people are better than others at sort of tempering those. Um, you do a wonderful job at that, but you're human. You have an ego too. Um, what did you learn about yourself and, and how active the ego was in sort of what you felt about yourself and, and sticky fingers and, and and did you did you find needing to strip that away sure yeah no that, that's a great question and and gets to the, the core of a lot of things i think um it was tough and it, it sort of makes you face who you are a little bit more than a persona or a mask that mm-hmm. you sort of put on as um you know whatever it, it, it was easy to define myself in a professional role and that's a pretty crappy way to define yourself at the end of the day so ultimately it was very healthy to get that opportunity to reinvent ourselves um, but it wasn't easy to do yeah 
Well, you've done it remarkably well because um, you're not only incredibly actively involved, you've now stepped back in probably in a really healthy way and, and you know, engaged with the company, um, sort of bringing back some of the soul that maybe was lost. Uh, um, and, and I think that's been really rewarding, right? I mean, for financially aside, just, sure. you know, emotionally. Yeah, and a lot more so than I, than I thought it would be. Um, frankly, I was... I helped recruit a CEO. I liked the current owners of Sticky Fingers. I liked a lot of the local people who were involved. I was not big fans of the management team. That This is the four, fifth or sixth management team since we sold it um, that I thought continued to sort of run into the ground. I didn't think they were taking care of the people. And, um, you know, the people that were still there, a lot of them were apathetic, understandably, because they weren't getting the sort of right kind of support from the, the folks who were supposed to be helping them out. Um, so I'd helped recruit a CEO who to get rid of the current management team or the former management team. Last minute he bailed and I was sort of the only one standing. If they were going to go, I had to step up. And I really was not excited about it, I'll admit, at first. Um, but it's been a lot more rewarding than I thought. Um, the biggest part of it has just been sort of unshackling the people who had been um, working under, I think, poor leadership and giving them the freedom and the opportunity to right. make change and giving them the support. And, you know, I've, I've thrown in some ideas and I think I've been helpful, but the biggest thing was just listening to them and then sort of taking it in the direction that they thought it, it needed to go. A lot of which is, or were things that we used to do well um, that, you know, maybe we didn't realize we did well at the time. Um, so it's it's been a lot more fun, a lot more rewarding than I would have guessed, and the results are are coming. Um, so that's been exciting too. You know, as as an adult, you you realize uh, the importance of building sort of confidence and inspiring others. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things that I take away from coaching is to watch kids. Sure. And I was just just curious as you were talking about that as coach because you're very actively involved with coaching kids. Uh, is that does that translate into sort of like not not the employees or kids, but um, just inspiring others to do it themselves and like sure. get inspiring the confidence that they can do that? Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a accurate statement. And, and a lot of what I've done um, is not function as the sort of typical CEO, but coaching the COO who and, and for all practical aspects is really running the company. He's the CEO. I'm just sort of coaching him and trying to help him and throw some ideas his way and reinforce some of his better qualities and he's got a lot of great ones um so that's been it's been a lot of fun and then and then do the same thing with some of the key employees and sort of actively reach out to them as a founder you've got a, a little different ability to motivate people that I've, I've learned over time and so that's been fun to develop some new relationships or even some old relationships with people who've been there a long time um and get people a little more inspired and fired up and support them and sort of help them move forward as i'm as i'm thinking about the last little adventure we want to end with i'm thinking about um you know the adventure in politics sort of was was seizing a door that you glanced at and was open and going through it and the adventure with sticky fingers was with two friends you know uh but this adventure is solo i mean not with friends is with your family um but you created this door <laughs> this wasn't a door that sort of opened and you seized it you in this adventure uh which has taken the family 
on uh, essentially a year abroad, right? Um, you created that tour. Talk, talk to us a little bit about why, and uh, you're going on it in about a week, so what, where your state of mind is. Sure. Um, state of mind is... Uh, it's Panic? It's panic, <laughs> sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. <laughs> Both me and everybody in my family. Um, so I mentioned Australia before, and it's sort of been a bucket list place of mine to visit. Um, it, partially just because the people I've met, I've, I've not hung out with an Australian that I didn't leave maybe with a little hungover and with the thought that, boy, I'd like to hang out with them more. Um, so it's... I, I think um, a unique culture. Um, they speak English, so it's accessible for the kids, yet it's still exotic. And I wanted to give the family uh, or my children an, an experience abroad while they're young and I think can have an impact. So it's, it's been, we've circled January 2017 for a long while. That, that was kind of the magical age. My oldest will be um, not too old to go, and my youngest will be hopefully old enough to remember it. And so a week from now, we're, we're heading off to Melbourne, Australia, um, where the kids will be in school. And uh, it's having gone on some of these other adventures, it's I'm not as fearful as I think they understandably are. I mean, they're leaving their friends and struggling with a lot of the stuff that, you know, I struggled with when I did my Japan stint or White House stint back in, in high school and college. And it's I think been helpful to tell them I know this seems like you're leaving for an eternity and the whole world at your school is going to pass you by and you're going to come back and mm -hmm. everything's going to be different and you've lost your friends and you won't make new friends over there and it's it's helpful from a coaching standpoint to have had the experience I've had and say it's not going to be that way I don't I don't know they believe me um, <laughs> but the great thing is that they'll I think come back with that experience and hopefully that confidence that'll they can carry through life. Yeah, that's the reason you do it, right? Because uh, when you're so comfortable that you uh, you want to stay in that little room, um, you know, it's time to venture out and check out a different room. Well, it's one you know? thing to lead by example, and it's another thing to actually uh, inhabit the experience. Right. So, like, you know, you can talk all you want about this sort of thing, sure. but then you bring in your kids and your whole family there, and so they they will live it, right. which is a whole different whole different ball game. Yeah. Um, the 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 closing song that you that you gave us was the parable of the trapeze artist, which I love. Of course, you know it'll be our new theme song, I think. But uh, um, you'll see in a minute. You know, our listeners will hear this. But the 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 swinging from letting go of one swing and flying through midair before you grasp hold of the next one. It feels like that's about where you are on this trip. It's yeah. that sort of uncomfortable in-between zone. Sure, absolutely. And, and it, calling it, it a song is, is maybe loosely okay. a song. But I, I, think it's, it's, yeah, I think it's a wonderful story, and it is. I have a little guitar behind it, so we, yeah, it we, does. It, we, we'll call it a song for this purpose. Um, but I, I think it's remarkable, um, and it's something that was introduced to Alex and I a long time ago when we were first starting the forum that, that you later joined, John. Um, the, and one of the things I think it does remarkably well and has been very helpful to me going forward is identify that sort of in-between when you're letting go of one trapeze and grabbing the other and celebrating that sort of fear mm -hmm. in that space, naming it and, and talking about how most people dread it and are concerned about it and want to get through it as quickly as possible 
and the song sort of points out it's maybe the place where the most change and growth as individuals happens and is something that should be i think savored as a word that's used yeah absolutely absolutely i always think about you know a, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly that process you know when it turns to a pile of whatever it is inside the cocoon before it transforms that's got to be uncomfortable sure <laughs> but you know what emerges is amazing the yeah. whole process is amazing and so but that part is critical and not to be dismissed or try to like fight through it but uh, yeah to savor it sure and i, I think partially do the song partially with the, the benefit of the wisdom of time i guess i've been able to yeah. when i've been in those sort of scary in between spaces take a step back and sort of look at myself um from with a little bit of distance and say all right you know you'll get through this you'll get to the next trapeze and sort of analyze what i'm going through and try to enjoy it and figure out how to make the most of it uh, that's good to be able to have that presence sure absolutely uh well we look forward to having you back so we can get the the, the return side of this latest adventure you're heading out on and and hear all about it uh, well thanks i've enjoyed yeah. it cool and look forward to doing that as well thanks for being with us my friend i enjoyed it yeah. thank y'all cheers all right we're gonna head off and listen to the parable of the trapeze enjoy Sometimes I feel that my life is a series of trapeze swings. I'm either hanging on to a trapeze bar, swinging along, or for a few moments in my life I'm hurtling across space in between trapeze bars. Now most of the time I spend my life hanging on for dear life to my trapeze bar for the moment. It carries me along at a certain steady rate of swing and I have the feeling that I'm in control of my life. I know most of the right questions and even some of the right answers. But once in a while, as I'm merrily or not so merrily swinging along, I look out ahead of me into the distance, and what do I see? I see another trapeze bar swinging towards me. It's empty. And I know in that place in me that knows that this new trapeze bar has my name on it. It's my next step. My aliveness coming to get me. And in my heart of hearts, I know that for me to grow, I have to release my grip on the present well-known bar to move on to the new one. Now each time it happens to me, I hope, no, I pray, that I won't have to grab the new one. But in my knowing place, I know that I must totally release my grasp on my old bar and for some moment in time, I must hurtle across space before I can grab onto the new bar. And each time I'm filled with terror. It doesn't matter that in all my previous hurdles across the void of knowing, I have always made it. Each time I'm afraid that I will miss, that I'll be crushed on the unseen rocks in the bottomless chasm between the bars. But I do it anyway. Maybe this is the essence of what the mystics call the faith experience. No guarantees, no net, no insurance policy. You do it anyway because somehow to keep hanging on to that old bar is no longer on the list of alternatives. 
and so for an eternity that can last a microsecond or a thousand lifetimes, I soar across the dark void of the past is gone, the future is not yet here. It's called transition. I have come to believe that this is the only place that real change occurs. I mean real change, not the pseudo-change that only lasts until the next time my old buttons get punched. I have noticed that in our culture, this transition zone is looked upon as a no thing, as a no place, between places. Sure, the old trapeze bar was real, and the new one coming towards me, I, I hope that's real too. But the void between... It's just a scary, confusing, disorienting nowhere that must be gotten through as fast and as unconsciously as possible. What a waste. I have a sneaking suspicion that the transition zone is the only real thing and that the bars are illusions we dream up to avoid the void where the real change occurs. Whether or not my hunch is true, it remains that the transition zones in our lives are incredibly rich places. They should be honored, even savored. With all the pain and fear and feelings of being out of control that can accompany transition, they are still the most alive, growth-filled, passionate, expansive moments in our lives. And so transformation of fear may have nothing to do with making fear go away, but rather giving ourselves permission to hang out in the transition between trapeze bars. Transforming our need to grab that new bar is allowing ourselves to dwell in the only place where change really happens. It can be terrifying also be enlightening in the true sense of the word. Hurtling through the void, we may just learn how to fly. I love that tune. I mean, it's not a tune, it's a parable, but uh, gosh, it's so descriptive. It should really be our our, uh, our theme song. You know? Well, it is for this show, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, and thanks to Chad for pulling that one out. It's perfect. You know, I've known Chad for, gosh, 22 years, so I, I've watched a lot of this um, yeah. from uh, the front row. And uh, I tell you, I mean, I, I hope I, I sort of articulated my thinking around him in the, in the introduction, but he really is. I mean, we've had a lot of incredible guests, uh, 
but he's just an incredible human being. I mean, the, yeah. the, the attention he, uh, w- the detail and engagement that he has on all levels, um, kids, husband, board member, political activist, uh, entrepreneur. I mean, the sticky fingers is maybe what defines him, but he's, he's done many other concepts, you know, right. Um, right. He's a partner in the expansion of pose down in Florida and bottles, in North Carolina bottles where we can go and grab a, a, bo- a great bottle of wine or, so, or some liquor, uh, which is a gr- great concept. My wife, uh, absolutely story. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's just, uh, and he does it with such humility. I mean, that is, that is one of the, the qualities that I'm most attracted to, I think. Um, He's, it's an interesting combination because he, he always uh, comes off just from a general feel, like an energetic feel, as a, just a really grounded individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and as he says, he, it seems like he moves sort of slowly and deliberately once he picks his direction and and he's just going to get there like you said in you know about Colombia he's going to dig in and you know when the going gets tough he's not the kind of guy who's going to turn yeah. around and and bag it you know he's just going to dig in and 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 figure out what it is that it takes to get to the other side and um but without getting too riled up about it no. you know slow and patient yeah stamina yeah you know, stamina i asked him about the current political environment and this was pre you know november 8th and trump winning um I was just asking him about the state of the Republican Party, you know, and what he yeah. felt like nationally. I, he was just so even keeled about it. You know, this is cycles. This this right. this cycle will change too. You know, um, hmm. he does have a really deliberate way, um, methodical, with a long time frame with which he views things. You know, um, which is a real quality. Yeah, I'm really curious what happens in in, in Australia. You know. Yeah. A, year, a year abroad, if that's uh, just a blip on the radar, or if that significant changes come out of that adventure as well. Well, it's great to see him taking his family through that experience that has led to so many incredible things for his life. Right? Yeah, right. Like you, like you said, it's yeah. one thing to do it yourself or to talk about doing it, but to, yeah. to be able to witness the transformation that that uh, creates. Yeah. For those that you love most. Yeah, it was like when, when Bayes was in New York for those few years. Or, you know, you think about, you know, our good friends, the Harrisons, and they take their family to Barcelona and then to, to, to Dublin. Right. Um, significant growth and, you know, eye-opening worldviews happen when you do those things. Take people out of their comfort zone. Uh, between the trapeze bars, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good place. As you always say, you like, say, I like to shine light on the areas that I fear most and actually mm. move towards it rather than away from it. So yeah, it's not always the easiest thing to do. No, no. But it's, it's a not. good thing to... to, to good uh, practice. It's a good practice for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, uh just like to thank everyone of our listeners for uh, joining us again uh, for another hour show, Call to Adventure, hosted by 96.3 Ohm Radio. Uh, you can access the show, stream it where, John? You can stream it online at uh, uh, omradio96.3.com. Um, and you can find it at SoundCloud, search Call to Adventure, or iTunes, search Call to Adventure. And you'll find the podcast. And you can find, you know, I think there's 20, it should be 26, 27 episodes at this point. All right, we're getting there. We're getting yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, let's, let's leave on a, on a quote. 
the, one of Chad's favorites, sure. which I think kind of sums up uh, a lot of his uh, thoughtful, um, committed individual self. He says, uh, it's a Margaret Mead. It's a classic one that I love as well, but never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Maybe that's a good enough inspiration to get some other people to stop talking about it and dive in and see what happens. Get involved. Well, always good to see you, Alex. Yeah, great to see you. And uh, we sort of closed the chapter on 2016. And uh, looking forward to uh, 2017. Uh, And so uh, we hope uh, we'll be with you again on our next episode of Call to Adventure. Cheers. And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure. This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com.